Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Regen Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear about the implementation of regenerative systems for any agribusiness. I'm Harry Farnsworth and once again we'll be bringing you the latest developments on the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. Today we'll be talking about how regenerative agriculture can benefit farm animal health through integrated parasite management. This will include finding out about the mighty dung beetle and why it is a vital ecosystem engineer. I'm joined by Claire Whittle, a vet from LLM Farm Vets in the northwest of England, part of the Vet Partners Group. Like many vets, Claire's day job is focused on cows, more cows, and but more cows. But on top of this, she has been awarded the Nuffield Scholarship to research the extent to which regenerative agriculture practices can improve the health and welfare of livestock. She is also a fellow podcaster and co-host of Vet Perspective for Farmers and Vet Perspective for Vets podcast, in which she discusses everything from animal health challenges to mental health. We are also joined by James Allen, a livestock farmer in the Cotswold. James farms using regenerative practices. He and his wife began keeping livestock six years ago, starting out by conservation grazing species rich wildflower meadows. They now have 50 head of British white and English longhorn cattle, along with 150 Castle Milk, Morat and Portland sheep. Since 2019, they have been grazing on the Bruin estate, offering prescriptive grazing to support wildflower meadows and soil health. Both Claire and James are part of the Dung Beetles for Farmers, a group of dung beetle devotees who raise awareness of why the not-so-lowly dung beetle is essential to maintaining healthy ecosystems and how it can be helped by regenerative farming methods. Claire and James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I think it might be interesting to start just with a little bit of backstory, actually. If we could start with you, actually, James, because uh, I was reading your sort of bio on the website before. You've recently come into agriculture about uh, six years ago, and you've gone straight into what some might call the deep end of uh, regenerative type practices and you know, interesting grazing models. I wonder what drew you straight into sort of farming in this way instead of going down a more conventional route and then discovering it as you went? Oh, in some respects, being the first uh, generation farmer helped that. So I didn't have anyone to follow. I didn't have anyone to copy. So it was a blank sheet of paper. Um, so it wasn't as though you know, my dad, my grandfather and before that had been doing it this way forever. So therefore thou shalt do it this way forever. And breaking out of that mould is difficult. It, it was very much, oh, I want to have livestock. How, how do we do this? So I had to learn something. Um, and the way I got into the regenerative grazing was we, we don't have, well, we still don't have any land. So to get land to graze, we went into conservation grazing, as you mentioned, and we were grazing um, for Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust on one of their key sites. Through that conservation grazing process, I ended up talking to a guy called Rob Havard, who, you know, people knows um, very much into regenerative grazing and, and holistic plant grazing and Rob just so we were talking about how the livestock are on fairly large fields and they kind of their condition particularly on the poor kind of calcareous wildflower meadows we were grazing over the winter the condition was dropping slowly over the year and Rob said just just split the field up he said just split the field up and then you know they'll graze the best bits to start with then they'll kind of work their way down to the poorer grass but if you've got that in one big field, that's going to take months. And for you know, the last 
you know, three, four weeks or whatever, they're on the really rubbish grass that they've left to the end. If you've split the field up, then you rather than get this kind of slow decline of quality feed, you get much more of a sawtooth. Um, so they go into a smaller paddock, they eat the better grass, and then they kind of over a week or so, they work down to the worst grass, and then they go back onto good grass and they kind of move around. And he said, even if you split it once, split that field and try that. And then I went to see Rob on what he was doing. Um, and again, going back to the, I didn't have a base to start from. It, it just, it made common sense. I'm a very logical person and it just made common sense really. And it seemed like the right thing to do. So that's that's what I went with and I've, I've gone you know, onwards and upwards since then. And we just try stuff and get on with it. You know, and that's probably how I got into it really. I an interesting point about not having uh, the shackles to break already being sort of free. I think that's quite a common problem. People feel the burden of previous generations. Um, and, and Claire, yourself, not to um, tarnish vets with all the same brush, but uh, you know, as someone that frequents the, the vets, unfortunately, sometimes uh, it does, there is a feeling that they perhaps like getting the medicine cabinet open. Uh, at, all, at all costs maybe but uh, it, how did you come to the perspective of looking at alternate ways to help with livestock health and welfare mate obviously i've got to defend the veterinary professional <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that's necessarily the case recently we had um a problem with well we know it's an ongoing problem with global antibiotic resistance and i think one of the things in the uk is that we actually reduced our antibiotic usage over a period of about four years in livestock by 53 percent. now that is pretty phenomenal and that is obviously testament to uk farming i think that's a brilliant brilliant achievement but i came to the root with the antelmintics i guess um i've always had a bit of a passion for the environment regardless of being a farm vet and I think in the past few years where farming's received sort of more negative press particularly environmentally but also welfare I could always really easily balance the welfare side of things like the what gets talked about I just it doesn't happen on our farms it, it's not something I ever come across and um, so that was always an easy argument for me and always an easy win but the environmental side sometimes I did find that quite difficult to tally so I guess I just started looking at what people were doing differently um, and I've spoken about this before but I've got some clients um, down in Shropshire their young stuff look great basically they look they look really good and I asked them while we we're doing their head health planning I said what cake do you feed these and they said oh we don't feed any cake it's all it's all grazing and I couldn't really believe it when I was looking at them. And they basically do a lot of um, similar to James, so conservation grazing, and they've got wetland, peatlands, etc. They were talking about countryside stewardship. And this, to be totally honest, wasn't really an area I'd ever really come across before. So end up chatting to them quite a lot and um, came across via them Isabella Tree's book, which was Wilding, and that had about dung beetles in. And I didn't even know um, that we had dung beetles in the UK. Um, and I think we said before, you see these big rolling beetles and we assume that we have them here. We don't. <laughs> We've got two different types, but, but not that particular type. And I didn't, again, realise and wasn't taught in vet school that how badly affected they were by the wormers that we use. So started looking into that a little bit more. And yeah, and then James actually contacted me because I think I put a few bits and bobs on Twitter about dung beetles. And yeah, it's kind of spiraled from there. And thankfully, uh, the vet practice I work for have been really supportive of it. And now we do integrated parasite management sort of plans and things for our clients um, and trying to get people to use less wormers and only really worm when necessary. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think you sort of touched on it a little bit there, the sort of classic image when you say dung beetle is a sort of poor... Uh, 
dung beetle pushing a huge mound of dung up a sand dune and you can just see the pyramids appearing in the background and that's sort of the classic archetype but perhaps we can delve in straight into you know give us a bit of an insight into what our dung beetles are and, and, and what they're up to. Yeah, so we've got well, we've got two different types in the UK. Uh, well, technically three, but we'll go with the two. So we have we have tunnelers. Um, so they're the big guys, and they're the ones that bury the dung under the ground, and that is uh, contributes to a huge array of ecosystem services. And then we have the dwelling beetles as well. So the dwellers are that they dwell in the dung. That's where they complete their life cycle. And they're slightly smaller and, and different, a, a lot smaller than the big rolling beetles that we see. But what we try and focus on here would be numbers of dung beetles. So obviously one small beetle isn't going to do an awful lot. But if you have hundreds in a pack, then they can get rid of that quite quickly for you. <laughs> yes, uh, I saw, um, I'm not sure of how, how accurate this was, but it, something around that dung beetles can save the British livestock industry or does save the British livestock industry around 367 million pounds in in veterinary well you know welfare associated bills annually i suppose james you went straight into conservation grazing but have you seen uh, over the last six years a decline in in your medical inputs or you know what have you seen in that six years that kept you going down this path when we first started we didn't realize actually because we were on um, conservation grass and uh, very species rich swords um, native breeds moving the livestock quite often i hadn't really appreciated the benefits and how that was helping dung beetles a bit like claire I, I wasn't aware of dung beetles up until probably three years ago i went on a, um, a plfa farm tour uh, Sayan Spence, who's a dung beetle guru, was on that. And she just kind of delved straight into dung pats and started pulling out these beetles and going, oh, that's a dung beetle. And I went, oh, I, again, I hadn't kind of, I, you know, I was saying, you know, rolling beetles, you know, rolling dung across, you know, behind an elephant was what, what I was expecting and not in this country. And it was only at that point that I suddenly realised that what we were doing probably was really helping them. Um, you know, we weren't using a lot of pesticide kind of medication, wormers or whatever, habitually, um, because we weren't needing to. And I hadn't really realised, like I say, the, the grazing we were doing, the way we were grazing and the livestock we had was actually quite helpful for the dung beetle. So in, in answer to your question, the interesting thing for us is actually probably going on to the estate where we graze now 18 months, two years ago, and um, we're probably seeing less dung beetles now than we were because there haven't been livestock on, on that ground for 20 odd years. So it's taking a while for them to come in from wherever they are neighbouring. I, I don't know the neighbouring farm and, and what, how much they use uh, wormers and the likes, but um, it's, we're having to rebuild the number of dung beetles that we have on, on the farm compared to where we were originally grazing, which unbeknownst to me at the time, probably we were swimming in dung beetles. Yeah. And so the fundamental problem at the uh, underneath this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that the wormers and their medicine in the wormers sort of kills off the bacteria in the dung that the beetles need, or interests the beetles, and then into going in and pulling the dung apart and get, uh, and then bringing all the other beneficial factors of pulling it down into the earth or encouraging uh, beneficial pests to come feed on them. And that life cycle is then eliminated by the introduction of wormers. So your wormer is a pesticide, so but it does have sort of toxic effects and less toxic effects on dung beetles. So you can get them where you'll still find dung beetles in packs of um, animals that have been treated with ivermectin, for example. Um, but you won't, uh, they won't be able to breed. So that would be a sort of less toxic effect, if you like. So although they, you might find them in there, their ability to breed has been reduced over time. 
um, and then you get that sudden toxic effect usually they think closer to when the animal's been treated because the wormers are actually excreted pretty much unmetabolized and they can actually fly in and they can just die in the dung pat as well so you've got these sort of levels of toxicity as the ivermectin is excreted over time um, I shouldn't just say ivermectin because I think most wormers uh, will have some effect on dung beetles it just depends to what level okay so when you're when you're helping you know in a sort of advising a farmer to worm themselves off wormers how do you sort of manage that transition period where the farmer is perhaps worried that uh, the wormers aren't, aren't having the effect that they need and he's not getting the effect from the the grazing that he's put in to limit the effect of not having them present yeah so, so- I think one of the interesting things about um, wormers is that even if you have no interest whatsoever in dung beetles, uh, a really, really important point is that we are getting more and more affected by what we call antelmintic resistance or wormer resistance. So pesticides, uh, whether it's a crop pesticide or whether it's a pesticide or wormer that you use in your animals, we know that they're becoming less effective over time. So whether you're in any part of that's why a lot of people are heading down the regenerative route looking for solutions in nature I guess and the reason they're becoming less effective is because the pests that we're trying to treat are becoming resistant to what we're using so wormer resistant is a growing problem across the world and basically wormer resistance is the loss of sensitivity to a drug in a worm population that was previously sensitive to that so this resistance then gets passed on through generations and you can end up with a wormer resistance problem on your farm so all of your all of your control uh, wormers don't don't work anymore effectively so that's one way of getting into that conversation because basically when they stop working there aren't any new products available so there's no new products being brought to market so effectively what we have to do is protect the wormers that we have to use them when we really really need them and at the moment we just carry on using them on and on particularly when they're not needed if we're overdosing the frequency of worming um, can increase the rate of resistance basically So one way of getting around that, particularly for worming, can be to use faecal egg counts. So what we would get farmers to do to start off with would be to bring us muck samples to the practice or they can send them off themselves and then they get an idea of the worm burden on their pasture. And then if they don't need to worm, effectively don't worm, because if you don't need to, it's going to it's going to reduce that risk of resistance. It's going to help your pocket because you're not paying for something that you don't need. And ultimately, you're going to help your dung beetles as well. But yeah, that would be my way around it is you start with fecal egg counting. And if they need worming, then obviously you have at the moment, you know, animal health and welfare always comes first. So we will worm. But the first step for me will be trying to reduce that input. Hmm. And James, what is it in the, in your pastures that's particularly good at preventing worms in, in your livestock? Or is it all just the management, just making sure they're not returning to the same ground too quickly? Or It's a, a number of things. So you know, the advantage we've got in certain places, we do, for example, uh, cover crop grazing in an arable field um, over winter. Uh, we mob graze through that. So by having that variety in the sward, um, it actually, dung beetles, don't like wet pats um, they actually drown um, so you need a kind of good solid firm pat so by having that variety in the species in the in the sward in the pasture it actually puts fiber in um, and we let's say we bale graze through that cover crop as well and that really helps put the fiber in to give a good structure for a pat um, which is beneficial to the dung beetles and also by moving doing that regular movements um the uh, obviously the pest flies come in and they lay their eggs um, and then you have you know you have a worm burden and it's the 
the larvae that the cows are eating. If you've moved off, that larvae is not on a new on that pasture quite so much. So you are kind of moving away from the problem. And the other thing we do so during the um, summer, spring, summer, we do a lot of uh, tall grass grazing on a floodplain in particular, trying to build some soil health and increase the water absorption of the floodplain. Um, Again, if we are kind of mob grazing through that and we're doing the kind of traditional eat a third, trample a third, leave a third, the worm larvas are all at the lower level. They're all down on the ground or near the ground. So if we're only kind of skimming through and skimming off the top, we're keeping the cattle away from it. Um, mm -hmm. And the sheep as well. So we do um, tall grass graze with sheep. I mean, obviously they kind of will go a little bit lower and, and go for the slightly more juicy bits. But by doing that as part of regenerative grazing, um, actually it's helping to reduce the problems we've got um, with worms. And Claire said, you know, the, the key thing and the thing that any livestock owner can do tomorrow to, to actually start is to know what your worm burden is. You know, don't just go and oh, kind of, it's, it's this time of year, I normally just worm everything, let's just go worm everything because that's what I do. Know what your problem is first. And so the mm. fecal worm egg counts, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's a relative cheap thing to do. And if it means you don't have to worm the stock, then you're saving on the wormers and time as well. You know, to, you, time to bring everything in, treat it, and then send it out again. If you don't need to treat, don't treat. Um, and that's a simple step you can do outside of changing how you graze, changing the composition of your pasture or whatever, that are kind of further steps. Simple, check what you've got before you treat and then be able to target your treatment is the first step. I was just going to follow on from what James was saying as well there about pasture and, you know, going talking about regenerative agriculture, obviously, and, um, you know, a lot of people planting up things like herbal lays. So things that are natural antiparasitics in this world, would you believe nature has an answer again? Um, but incorporating other grasses and things into your pasture, so things like chicory. So chicory has been shown in various studies to have about a 40% reduction on worm burden. Um, and also samphoin and trefoils and things like that as well. They also have sort of these natural antiparasitic properties. So using your pasture and management is, is far and away above treatment for me. So that's where your, your whole integrated parasite control is a bit like integrated pest management. Integrated parasite management is effectively the same thing. So you're not just thinking about when you're going to treat those animals, you're thinking about what you can do to prevent it. And um, James uh, very cleverly came up with the PAT principle, which is prevent, assess and treat. And the first one in that, obviously, prevent, that's the most important one. There's various things people can do. So James obviously mentioned about rotating stock. So young stock would be another one. So what I'll see time and time again is people using the same young stock paddocks year on year. And then effectively, young stock act as multipliers for worms. So they just multiply them up. They come out their back end and they stay on the pasture. And then young stock go in there the year after and the animals need treating. So rotating those animals around, rotating cattle with sheep. Older animals as well can act like hoovers. So they can actually hoover up where young stock have been and hoover up those worms. And they build resilience over time. So having low worm burdens isn't necessarily a bad thing because it's meaning that your cattle are building up resilience to that. Another thing I see a lot is adult cattle um, and sheep as well getting treated. Most of the time they don't need treating. Um, they've actually yeah. built up that cell as long as they've grazed year on year. That's interesting. Is it through the fecal matter that you could check they have that resistance or how do you... How do you know that you're um, so generally adult animals won't need doing so um, one way of doing it, um, particularly for young stock, would be daily live weight gain. So if your animals are hitting their live weight gain, which is what which will be different for cattle and sheep. But if they're hitting the weights you want to achieve, then chances are they don't really need worming. 
Um, selective worming can help be helpful as well. So picking out those animals that aren't hitting their weight gains. So selective worming helps um, build what we call refugia. So we're not treating, when you treat all the, all the worms um, in all the animals, um, you're going to build up the risk of that antimantic resistance or that wormer resistance we discussed before. So if you're treating only a selection of animals, so the ones that aren't growing well, the ones that have got mucky bums, et cetera, mm. um, then you're leaving some of those sensitive parasites on the pasture, which is really, really important. And again, we used to talk about things like dose and move. So people very um, traditionally, and even now, even when I graduated, this was still um, the sort of common thing I think that people ever did or common advice um, that people had was that you dose your animals and you move them because you want them on clean pasture immediately. The best thing we think now is actually to dose your animals, leave them on the pasture for a couple of days so you're getting rid of those resistant worms, but they're also coming into contact with sensitive worms on the pasture and then move them um, a little while later. So you're not just getting resistant worms dropping onto clean pasture. You know, with the return to systems, especially, you know, with grazing and the, you know people sort of talk about stacked enterprises and following livestock on how does that sort of affect if i'm running um some cows followed by sheep followed by you know chickens or sort of a classic example is there a period i should wait for those pats to break down enough or is it all right to send in different species after each other chickens is the interesting one um so chickens will eat dung beetles um so is it difficult to answer that one and give a you know, some people would say, don't you dare follow um, dung, you know, cattle with chickens because you're just going to eat all my dung beetles, keep away from them. Um, certainly giving a few days or a week to follow uh, would help. And it's a balance, um, as with all these things. The dung, dung beetles will start arriving um, fairly soon after the uh, pat hits the ground. They prefer something that's kind of dried up a little bit more. As I say, they, they will drown in really wet pats, um, so kind of two, three days. Uh, and they can, if you've got a really active dung beetle population, they can clear a patch in you know, a matter of days, a week or so. So following with chickens a bit later is better than kind of following immediately afterwards where you're, you're just basically putting a, a, um, a predator in, in the way of the dung beetle um, as they're trying to arrive. There's no great answer with that one. Um, it's one of those things that everything doesn't always work together. Sally Ann always talks about pigs as well because pigs will definitely have a poo and then almost go back again and eat the dung beetles out of their own poo, which is hilarious. But um, yeah, there's obviously different things in different systems, but historically it's worked. And I think if we can if we can reduce if we can just reduce the wormer usage, and um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good start. So obviously agricultural practices will affect dung beetle populations, but also uh, land usage. So if you end up with a car park, for example, where you once had grazing cattle, that is massive habitat loss. And we know that some of like man-made structures, I know um, Sally Ann, who's also in the dung beetles for farmers group, she says there's a population, I can't remember which type of beetle she said, but they're struggling to cross the M5 because, so they're found on one side, but they're struggling to get across the other. So it could be something to do with their flight paths. Um, we don't know enough about their life history, I think, to know exactly how they function. But yeah, land usage um, is, is also a culprit there. It's not just looking at agriculture. Okay, so sort of slabbing over and putting roads in is actually affecting their ability to navigate around and find the paths that they need to flourish in. Uh, I mean, I struggled crossing the M5 to get to Bristol from where I am at the best time, so I imagine dung beetles must have a pretty hard time. They will fly, you know, a, a couple of miles, but obviously the, the more um, humans put, put in their way, the, the harder they're gonna, it's going to make for their lives. Uh, and that ranges as everything from, say, the M5 through to 
um, the more kind of monoculture grasslands to using worms in livestock. It, you know, it all adds up um, and has an impact on their populations. And that's why we've seen such a you know, drop in populations over the last um, number of years. How are they um, affected by um, sort of arable operations? Is there much, uh, I suppose there's a connection there with heavy pesticide use or if someone's applying farmyard manure onto their, onto their cropping fields and then going in and putting down some uh, pre-emergence uh, pesticides or something that must be uh, uh, devastating for them as well? So fundamentally, dung beetles need dung. So without it, they're obviously not going to thrive at all. They need it uh, fresh out of the cow um, onto the ground. So spreading muck, that's not a habitat for them. So unless you're actually integrating livestock onto those arable fields, the only dung beetles you'll get on that are in kind of the native animals in those fields. So deer and, and things like that. Without having, you know, cows, sheep, as I say, integrated in, you're going to struggle to get large numbers of dung beetles into those arable fields. We don't know a lot at the moment about how fertilisers and other pesticides that we use in arable affect beetles. I think there is some research ongoing in that, but I imagine it's not the prettiest of pictures, as with a lot of our bugs and biodiversity. Yes, but integrating livestock onto arable fields can be massively beneficial, I imagine, if they're pulling the dung down into the uh, soil. They have a, a massively positive effect on earthworm numbers. Yeah, I mean, I mean we've not actually really talked about why dung beetles is actually so important and, and the benefits they bring and um, that I mean, that's one of the key ones you know they will you know they're, they're huge warriors really in particularly in regenerative agriculture grazing systems because they will bring that dung down into the ground you know the tunnelers that claire mentioned will will dig tunnels you know as big as you know as wide as your finger down one or two meters down to the ground and they will take dung down you know into brood balls into that soil so you know, they are fertilising it for you. So they provide a huge number of um, ecosystem benefits, which are you know, worthwhile to the farmer. Fertilising the soil is one. Um, they obviously remove the, the dung from the pasture, allowing, allowing the pasture to grow. Uh, what else do they do? So we've talked a lot about wormers, and one, one way of reducing pest flies is by having an active dung population. The, the dwellers in particular, they, they, they drink the fluid from the dung so they you know they dry it and, re and remove remove that dung those tunnelers the g troopids um, will, will take that dung down so they will take that dung off the surface quickly and um, say so, you know potentially weak which reduces the habitat for flies and, and stops that cycle um, of pest flies greenhouse gases again you know, if you've got a dung pat sat there um, it's just emitting greenhouse gases obviously very topical at the moment if you've got an army of dung beetles in your in your land taking it down into the ground then it's not reducing those greenhouse gases it's actually building carbon into the soil with the tunneling so they will break up that soil so they uh, will allow water to percolate more uh, they rework the soil and you know ultimately also they add to the biodiversity and, and a prey for other animals so they, they provide a huge number of benefits to farmers particularly around pest flies, it's a, it's a self-improving thing. So the more dung beetles you've got, the quicker they reduce the pats off the field, the less flies you've got, the less wormers you need, or other you know, fly treatments. And you kind of go on and on and, until actually you're positively building an environment for the dung beetle and for the health of the livestock. It really is worth thinking about and, and trying to actually help the dung beetle help you as a farm basically is the bottom line and that's why the dung beetle for farms group exists is is to try and bring that awareness to farmers and, and help them help themselves i think what i'd really like to see is 
exactly what James said is getting people off that sort of chemical treadmill where you you have less dung beetles then you use you have to use more wormers you have to use more fly treatments and then you have less and less dung beetles and the process just goes on and on and ultimately no one's going to win in that situation and we're just going to we're going to end up in a bit of a pickle and the pest fly thing is is great I saw um there's some farms where you go to and you take the dung beetle out of the pat and you can see that they're covered in these little mites um and these mites are as well so not only are they uh, reducing that pest fly um, reproductive cycle themselves, effectively they carry these little mites called phoretic mites. And these mites use your dung beetle a bit like an aeroplane. So they don't fly themselves. They hop on board a dung beetle. They fly from, the dung beetle flies from pat to pat and the phoretic mites jump off the dung beetle into the pat. And these phoretic mites eat um, pest fly eggs. So they're actually helping out your your livestock as well by eating their eating fly eggs. So I, and stuff like that's fascinating. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm in that movie Ants where I'm suddenly on board with uh, with all the uh, small creature insects. So that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, you see you see versions of that in uh, in sort of uh, wildlife but on bigger mammals being transporters for smaller uh, mammals. But that's amazing that it's happening on on dung beetles as well. And you touched upon there as well, James, the um, the emissions factor. I mean, I was I was reading up a bit before. I must say, I was doing some research into dung beetles while I was eating my lunch. Uh, and obviously, there's quite a lot of pictures of people with hands up backsides of cows and stuff. And it was a slightly Lovely. Uh, slightly odd time to be eating my lunch. But um, <laughs> <Into> my- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but they because they're breaking the pat down, and everyone's obsessed with carbon but actually also there's the massive methane thing there's less methane having time to enter the atmosphere because the pat isn't remaining on the surface for as long i mean that is not talked about enough in terms of livestock uh, emissions factors at all you know that's a really key element to uh, you know the classic it's not the cow it's the how argument and i'm sure something you both uh, come up against at work and you were actually saying claire that you um it's one part that you slightly struggled with before was the environmental impact of the welfare. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think Ellie, actually, who is also on our team, um, Ellie Slade, she um, did some work actually looking at uh, methane emissions from cow pats. Dung beetles may be responsible for reduction in about 0.1. Um, I've forgotten what 0.1 it is. Point one it is. I've forgotten what I'm saying, James. <laughs> I mean, 0.1 um, sounds good. Point yeah. one, we'll take point um, one. one of methane emissions from dung pats basically um at a, at a cow pat level that methane um that methane reduction from pats which have dung beetles in is massively reduced on a cow life cycle level because obviously most of our dung doesn't actually ever hit pasture um so when you look uh, as, as you move further up the chain the uh, reductions in methane get less but that's just because of the way we use cows throughout the world. Like you said, it's the how, not the cow. The cow, not the how. The cow, not the how. The how, not the cow. <laughs> the how, not the cow. <laughs> Got there. Got there. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the extreme, so if you look at feedlots versus, you know, fully regenerative grazed um, cattle, you know, a feedlot, the cows are all producing manure. It's all getting dumped. It's getting scooped off and, and dealt with God knows how. You know, that is not a dung beetle habitat that is sitting there and it's admitting all that methane and you know it's not going anywhere at all but if you go to the other extreme and go fully kind of regenerative 
um, then your your pattern you've got a very active dung beetle habit, habitat and and you know lots of dung beetles around they'll just pull that down into the ground and um, so you know your your dung is sitting, sitting there for a week maybe two weeks at most it's you know often if you walk around a field that's not got an active dung beetle population you'll see these dried dung pats that have been sat there for weeks months even potentially you know the winds just dried them out and there's that crust if you go into a field with an active dung beetle population um, you'll see kind of the very top of a pat, but you go and kind of touch it or pick it with your foot, it's just crumbled away to nothing. It's because they've they've taken the core of that pat down into the ground, and therefore you know the methane is is not sitting, being able to evap- you know, go out into the atmosphere. And also, of course, they you know they're sequestering that carbon, they're taking it down, they're building that soil structure and, and that healthy um, soil as well. So it is very much part of of the how. And it, you know that broad brush of cows are bad and you know, methane, it actually doesn't tell the full story. Um, and, and when you go down into looking at how you graze your livestock and things like the dung beetles, which are so key to it, and particularly to you know regenerative grazing. So regenerative grazing, one of the key things about regenerative grazing is improving soil health by integrating livestock. You know, some people would say, if you haven't integrated livestock, then you're not doing regenerative agriculture. And to get the benefit from those that livestock, from those cows or the sheep, by improving soil health, everyone says, yes, they're great, they put dung on the ground and it improves soil health. Well, it doesn't improve soil health if it's sat on the top. You know, that's not improving soil health. It's got to be pulled down into the ground to really be doing that active soil improvement. You could argue that if you follow the... To do regenerative uh, agriculture, you've got to integrate livestock um, to improve soil health. To improve soil health with livestock, you really need the dung beetle to actually be pulling that dung down to the ground. You could argue that actually dung beetles are a key part of regenerative agriculture, and without them, you're not really doing as much of the job as you could be doing. Yeah, I mean, the the conversation is often on worms, um, not uh, on dung beetles. And I must say, as a we've been speaking the three of us I've, I've got a whole new fresh perspective on what i actually think about farmyard manure and its application and i didn't quite realize that dung beetles only went into completely fresh pads so yeah. you know for me that's huge learning um so perhaps actually the only way is to graze them on arable land before you you're putting the crops in but or, or you know on a um on a forage crop um that's, that's very interesting in, indeed it comes down to what's feasible um so you know, yes, you can say in an ideal world, um, all livestock is outwintered, it's grazed out all year round, but that's just not practical. Um, you know, the, every farm is different, every, every field in every farm is different, um, some will hold livestock, some won't. But, but if you can get livestock outwintered into arable fields, so, so the last couple of years, we are, have been grazing a cover crop, so we've been bale grazing cover crop on an arable field. So rather than having the animals, the cattle in a shed and collecting that dung up, letting it sit there for a while and you know get all the methane out and then go and spread it over the field, we're spreading it directly over the field by the cow at the time and you know letting kind of nature actually take it down in, in you know in effect inject it into the soil for us. Mm. That's great, but it, it isn't feasible all the time and you know yeah we've, we've got to be realistic about that um, um and what is possible but if you know what is achievable and what is possible then you know we can kind of where possible transition towards that in that direction yeah exactly i think you've got to take a realistic scope and you know, exactly as you were saying not all farms are 
are equal. And, and Claire, I wonder you were saying before the call actually that predominantly your work is is now with the dairy sector. And you know, what are the options for outwintering dairy? I mean, I mean, must be so breed uh, specific, or is that not even an option? Sometimes it's not an option. Um, sometimes we do have sort of fully housed systems, but um, I think, like I was saying earlier, there are a lot of farmers that have heifers that graze outside. So potentially you can make a bit of space for dung beetles there um so you know any animals outside over winter is really really important for dung beetles some species of dung beetle that really rely on dung being available over winter so you know if people can let one or two animals out maybe once a day just to have a poo <laughs> bring them back in they're giving them something to eat um and um yeah, I think with with dairy systems, it, it can be potentially more difficult. Um, and there's not many herds where you see outwintered heifers, but that's not to say it's not possible. There's some people that do it really, really well. And I think having that mindset change, uh, which we were talking about earlier, Harry, just, you know, with dairy, it can often be difficult where, you know, people are chasing yields potentially as well. But there's areas where people can make a difference. And I think um, that definitely with the heifers is one of them. The bit that I'm sort of circling back to in my mind while you're both talking is what happened to dung beetles? Why did they suddenly drop off everyone's radars? You know, it, it, they've always been there. They've always been part. And I found it amazing, Claire, uh, not dissing vets at all in this, but just saying I just found it amazing that it isn't, wasn't part of your literature at vet school. You know, that, but I suppose uh, if you follow the, the track of all modern, modern medicine, animal or human, it has become more chemical and we are having a resurgence of the biological but it does seem funny that they sort of dropped off the map i don't think it's just vet school that though is it harry it's agricultural colleges it's everywhere fair point yeah we don't and we haven't been for a very long time taught about the environmental impacts of it and whether or not they were known that's the other thing you know it's only fairly recently that we you know we know about pesticides what how bad they i mean people have been talking about it for a long time but it's only more recently that it's actually sort of become more common knowledge. We, and I don't think people would have done the things that they've done had they realised. I think that's that's a lot of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right. There's, a, there's a lot of things that, you know, we're becoming more aware of. Pollinating bees, um, you know, worms, you know, they, their popularity and importance has had a, a massive resurgence um, or a massive surge. I, I don't know whether, you know, how important they were perceived before. Um, but, you know, seeing how important it is to have pollinators and, and, you know, all the things that we're doing with various chemicals, which are not friendly to bees and things like that, you know, worms, you know, farmers will go and do worm counts and things like that. So there's becoming a much more awareness of the importance of having, of working with nature. And I guess that's something, you know, leaping back to what you said at the beginning, Harry, is, is how did um, Katie and I um, get into grazing the way we do? We always started working with nature. You know, nature's there. We're out grazing with it, particularly with conservation grazing. And it just is, is very natural. And other people are thinking about it, actually. Well, you know, bees are important. Worms are important. Do you know what? Dung beetles are as important, possibly even more important than worms. You know, we could have an argument with a worm expert and, and <laughs> fight over who's more important. But, um, but you know, it's it's realizing that you know nature's been at this for an awful long time, and it's it's pretty close to getting it right. Um, mm. You know, we've we've turned up, industrial farming has turned up, and and we're finding our way. You know, and I'm not going to sit here and say all oh, industrial farming chemicals and, and it's all bad. Um, it's it's not at all. You know, it's it's helping to feed the world. But as with so many of these things, when you start doing 
something new and i'm talking over the last 70 80 years whatever through the industrialization of chemicals and things of farming you tend to go too far you tend to go oh this is great look at look what yield this is increasing improving look how this is you know stopping the pests and the, and you just go for it and you get to a certain point you go oh hang about i might have gone a little bit far here and you need to kind of center it a bit more bring it back again and i think with the environment with you know the climate crisis with biodiversity crisis if you want to kind of go down keep following that route we're, we're very much becoming aware not just as farmers and vets, but actually the general public are becoming a lot more aware that actually, you know, bees are important, uh, worms are important. Do you know what? Dung beetles are as equally as important. And we've got to work with them in nature and see how we can farm with them while maintaining the health of the livestock, while also trying to feed um, a large population. And it's that balance. Yes. And what uh, outreaches or what outreach then is the dung beetles for farmers? You know, what, what, what can people get involved with or, you know, how can a farmer get a, interact with you guys as a movement and start learning this stuff and you know, get on this on this road? First point is the website. So dungbeetlesforfarmers.co.uk. We put that together. That went live at the beginning of this year. So what's that eight months ago? And the idea behind it is there's a group of farmers, entomologists, and um, the vet, you know, Claire, of all independently, you know, interested in dung beetles. Um, and there wasn't a huge amount out there about, as a farmer, why are they important and what can I do to help? So we pulled the website together. Since then, obviously, we're doing podcasts like this, trying to kind of make awareness of it. We were at Groundswell. So Sally-Anne was talking at Groundswell and the Dung Beetles Farmers team had a stand. And we also did a couple of uh, dung beetle safaris which were scarily uh, popular. We had I, I was at Groundswell, and unfortunately I was on a stand, so I couldn't go on the safari, but I could not believe the snake of people following whoever it was up yeah. that field. It was crazy. There were so many people going on their safaris. I know. Well, we were expecting <laughs> 20 to 30 people turning up. And we, you know, we had, Claire bought some gloves and people get hands in. We turned around, there's two to 300 people walking yeah. down the track. So it just shows the interest. And I think we're at a great time for dung beetles where actually people are aware of how important they are uh they're becoming fashionable which is great that's you know we'll always take that um so it's a good time for it and a known benefit so through the website through various um podcasts um the team have done various uh webinars and things like that um and we have been uh, approached by uh, another conference uh, about doing one of their big sessions uh, we are trying to get some funding for that at the moment it's just the five five or six of us that are kind of doing this off our own bat what we're trying to do at the moment is is take it to the next step uh, which is about giving you know leaflets booklets um, getting involved in, in some of the bigger conferences um, and actually, and then actually being able to go out to farm clusters and things like that. But at the moment, it's taken a lot of our time and you know, everyone's you know, done that freely. Uh, we are now at the stage with to actually really make a difference. We're, we're looking for you know, a company, organisation or whatever that actually believes in what we're trying to do um, and to try and support us to, to go wider and reach wider because um, mm. there's only so much we can do by doing podcasts like this. We actually want to be on the ground making a difference and, and spreading the word. That's that's where we're aiming at. Spreading the word, spreading the dung. I think that should be yep. your tagline. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and just while we're talking, you know, especially 
having uh, someone who is so active in conservation grazing and Claire yourself is doing this fantastic nuff field. Just to touch a bit more on the wider welfare aspects from regenerative agriculture, we get. I mean, we had um, the ethical butcher on last month with uh, with a fantastic farmer called Neil Harley, and we sort of touched on some of these points. But and then that's part of the reason we wanted to get uh, you guys on as well for this episode to really look at the additional welfare as well. And I'm dying also, Claire, to ask you a question about end of life as well and your viewpoint on on field or on farm uh, mobile slaughters as well, because it feels like, I know it seems a bit like I've gone absolutely off the radar, but it's all connected in the same sort of condensed ecosystem here. So, you know, maybe to you first, Claire, I mean, what are the key indicators for you when you're looking at a, a regenerative system that, that there is good welfare? <laughs> I've not seen that many, to be totally honest, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's why you're doing the Nuffield, so maybe I'll ask you there. In my field. So, yeah. um, so there's, um, I guess there's lots of benefits. I think, uh, uh, I suppose the list is probably endless. I don't, I think nutrition wise has got to be some really um, important things in there. And I don't quite know what they are yet. I was talk- listening to Nigel Kendall at, um, at Groundswell talk- from New Vetna talking about willow. So using willow as a sub- as a supplement for cobalt in their system. So he's uh, compared, like, I think he compared dre- cobalt drenches and um, cobalt supplement with willow, and actually willow sort of far outweighed anything else. So I think there's lots of benefits with things like trees and hedges, obviously the shelter and shade from trees and hedges as well. So animals being outside and having that ability. And that, uh, that ability to choose as well, I think it's important. And it's not something that we see, you know, again, working in dairy, you quite often just see cows are given a field of ryegrass, They'll eat it, of course they will, but what would they actually do themselves? How can they nourish themselves? I find that fascinating. And I think that's got some key, it's got a key importance in terms of welfare. So, you know, that ability to choose is that, you know, that is a welfare thing, isn't it? And then also, I guess that having the right animal in the right system. So that's obviously really quite important. Like I probably wouldn't take one of my big Holstein, pedigree Holstein cows out of a, out of the um, intensive shed and put it outside in a field and just hope that it's going to be all right that wouldn't be a welfare for anything to do so I think having the right animal in the right system is really important genetics will probably play a role there as well so um you know picking those I, you keep I keep hearing more and more about farmers picking those animals that are sort of more wormer resistant and ones that don't need worming all the time they're the kind of animals that you want to breed from mm. so there's there's all of that in there too just on the he's talking Claire about the um choice we found when we let cows into a, a new field or a new section um the ryegrass is often the last thing they'll eat um mm-hmm. you know they'll, they'll go heads in you know there's, there's a lot of hedges we have uh, one of the parklands at the estate the lime trees they'll you know they will go and strip the bottom off the lime trees it's the first thing they'll do is run in and go oh great we're in with the limes again and willow as well we've got willow in some of them and they will they'll strip the willow off that they'll eat the nettles um we've got rushes in various places and it's, it's interesting, and I'd love to have the time and the um, knowledge to be able to sit and watch them and actually see what it is they are preferring, um, because they are, they are selecting themselves. One of the interesting conversations I've had with Claire previously, actually, about kind of animal health and choice in uh, kind of regenerative grazing is mob grazing. You know, Claire talked about shelter and you know, giving them access to shelter and things like that. If you've got a large field and you are mob grazing through that field, you will get to certain points where you don't have a boundary you may be electric fence field sectioned it up 
um, they haven't got a boundary, they haven't got a hedge, they haven't potentially even got shelter, um, depending how you split that hedge up, uh, field up rather. So it's quite interesting. In some respects, you're actually, by mob grazing, you're reducing their freedom of choice to walk around the field um, and pick different places in the field, but you're obviously giving benefits to them otherwise. So it's around important things to think about are, you know, as you're splitting field up and mob grazing, what is the weather like at the moment? Is there shelter? When we mob grazed last winter through the cover crop, there's a set of trees that, in effect, we sectioned the field up so they could always get access into the trees through the winter. And we used those trees as when the weather got really bad, we'd bump them up into that section rather than religiously just go around the grid, if you like, through um, quite a barren field. Um, so it's a balance. It's trying to actually give them freedom of choice, give them access to shade, to shelter, uh, to variety, but also try and not just give them an entire field and say, go knock yourselves out, find a bit you want and graze that. It's interesting what you said there, mate, about shelter as well, because shade is one that I've um, I've questioned a few people about. Shade is a different kettle of fish when it comes to regenerative, because a lot of people say where you've got longer grass, you obviously have cooler soils. So actually your animals being able to lie down on a cooler soil is different again to short grass grazing where you get to get hot soils. So your animals are going to be able to cool themselves. And also there's probably a lot of diet stuff in there as well. So when we're feeding things like when we're feeding dairy cows, for example, we are wanting really high rumen metabolism. We're putting a lot of protein in. We're really trying to get that rumen turnover. And that heats the animal up, that fermentation process. So actually slowing animals down, letting them eat what they want, letting them eat so, more slowly and increasing the dry matter um, in their diet is going to slow their digestive system down. So things like heat stress might become less important in, in those sort of regenerative systems where we're not just pushing them all the time for, for more and more production. It's like a whole new chapter that's sort of unraveling in front of me here that I, you know, that bit about mob grazing that you were just saying about being so much more sensitive to your planning than just thinking about a grid again. I've got my water and it's in the middle, they can always access it. It's that shelter that prevent you know, uh helping them with the habitat and also giving them the welfare to freedom of choice, I suppose, as well. Because yes, we are mim mimicking that movement across the savannah, but there was still flexibility in that movement. It wasn't, they weren't moving across in a grid. Uh, and in the savannah, if, you know, if there was a, a storm coming or whatever, they would, you know, skip a couple of grids and go and find the one with shelter. So, you know, we are getting close to mimicking. It's, it's interesting what Claire says about, you know, having that variety in pasture, that tall grass actually makes the ground cooler. We've all, you know, the, the extreme of that obviously is an arable field and the hot sun, you walk over that and you can feel the heat coming off it. You know, mm. hang gliders will use arable fields to get thermals and lift off them. You know, if you go to the other extent with that long grass or different pasture and variety pasture, you've got cooler, then that'll help cool which the livestock, which then offsets the fact that you maybe haven't got them, um, you know, shelter from the sun in this particular you know, section that you're grazing. Uh, so th there's options. You have to be prepared to be hyper bespoke, I suppose, but then that's all coupled in with, you know, making sure you have the best animal welfare. Uh, and, and Claire, sorry to ask you, Again, but I'm just so intrigued by this because we touched on it quite heavily last episode. And you know, are you seeing movements in the in the veterinary industry towards uh, people getting behind on-farm uh, slaughtering or mobile slaughter units, and what the sort of veterinary input on that sort of scenario is in terms of welfare? 
Yeah, I mean, I'd be quite happy to see more mobile. I'd like, be quite happy to see a mobile slaughterhouse, to be honest. I think often people can control a lot of how their animals might feel, I think, throughout their life. Um, so obviously they're on your farm, they're in your in your care and that one bit at the end of their life, you don't have a part to play in it. And I think that's important to some people, um, important to a lot of people. In fact, not important to some people, it's probably important to most producers, I would say, out there. And I think as we get less and less, not even mobile um, abattoirs, but just all of abattoirs going and go going, um, we're seeing less and less of them now. In fact, we've got a couple, I think, shutting down around not, not a million miles away from us and animals having to travel longer and longer distances to get to slaughter. Obviously, that's a welfare concern. We don't want animals traveling those distances um, where it's possible not to. And I, I'm not saying, you know, there's a, sometimes we think small is better. It's not necessarily the case. Of some, there are some big slaughterhouses out, out there that have animal welfare down to an absolute T and, there's, and vice, you know, vice versa. There's good and bad in both. But having that ability to not move animals so far to get to slaughter, I think probably, yeah, it's really important. It's a difficult one, actually, that one, Harry, because like I know slaughterhouses have to have vets. So would would mobile slaughterhouses, I'm assuming they would have to have a vet with them um, to check the animals like because they haven't obviously have an anti-mortem inspection. Um, so yeah. I don't know how I mean, I've heard rumours that there's things going on, but I don't know if anything's actually come to fruition or if it's all just legislative. The, um, we're in the Cotswolds um, and Fur Farm is not far from us um, and they have, I think, trialled uh, mobile, they've been doing a lot of work on mobile abattoirs um, and they have, I think, believe, last I saw, they trialled one um, and they're hoping to kind of roll that out relatively soon in the Cotswolds area where we are, which would be really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. We had um, a cow last year, the year before, that I just couldn't catch. You know, we because we don't own the land, our handling facilities are limited, shall we say? Um, and there was a cow I just couldn't catch it. You know, three four weeks I wasn't able to catch it. Um, it needed to go to the abattoir, uh, and we looked into field harvesting um, and actually having someone come out, um, shoot it. You know, a, a licensed person come out, shoot it with a vet present. Uh, the avatar on standby and actually field harvest it. It was hard work to organise, and in the end, I actually did manage to catch um, capture. But it, it, as going through that process, it was really interesting. Gosh, you know, wouldn't that be great? Is if rather than the stress on the animal, um, which obviously has impact on the, its welfare, but also actually on the meat quality as well. You know, the, mm. the stress has that impact on the taste. If you could just field harvest in the field, cows there eating grass one minute and the next minute you know that's it that would be great it's obviously not practical but that mobile abattoir is is more feasible and is closer to field harvesting than it is putting in the trailer and taking them you know, x amount of hours down the road into a a large abattoir it does seem a bit backwards somehow at the moment that the only time we can really do those on-farm slaughters are those instances. So when you have like a loose animal or a fractious animal or an animal's broken its leg, for example, that's you know, a situation where you can do it, uh, where a vet can go out onto farm um, and has to be there when the, the slaughterman's present, obviously, at the same time. But it's, yeah, it's only those situations and making that more available for more people to be there um, and for the animal not to have to leave the farm, as James said, the meat quality changes in terms of stress um, when you move those animals off. We don't know to the full extent what it is, but if they spent their entire life on one farm and mm. then they have to go at that last point in time, it's got to be detrimental, I think. 
yeah. all of our livestock never see a trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll, the closest they'll see a trailer is it driving past as, as you know as another farmer. We uh, work down from it's a small hill which is uh, on Cotswold Brash where we have the arable fields. So we will walk the cattle from there um, about I think it's six kilometres through across the estate across various farms. Uh, and it takes us an hour or two to get them down to the uh, river meadow and graze from that. So we don't trailer them. Uh, we do sometimes, and, and funny enough, we might be trailering them this weekend, but some of our cows will never have seen a trailer. So their first experience of a trailer is going to the abattoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and we touched on the sort of uh, savannah type idea, but the sort of natural heritage of, a, of where cows have come from, they're used to this idea of, death in the field and they're quite happily move on while one of their counterparts has passed in the field because it is it feels natural to them to see that behavior in the field whereas to get loaded into a trailer then into a white room is quite unnatural but you know I only ask because you know we're talking about regenerative grazing and obviously Claire we've got your veterinary uh, minds here as well so and it was just something that really resonated with me but from last week but um the other interesting side to that Harry is what you just said about people walking past dead animals now obviously we're not allowed to leave dead animals on the farm <laughs> yeah we can't do it anymore there's obviously infectious disease risk things like you know if an animal just dies as it died suddenly you know we still have to do things like anthrax investigations etc but there's certain things that are affected by the fact that we probably don't have dead animals in our systems anymore so Mm. you know like carrion beetles would be another example of a beetle where they rely on on carcasses (laughs) i'm probably going far too far too down a route at the moment which we need to come back to but you know why don't we have some dead animals you do i think um the largest that i don't i don't know this is, is a true fact but that apparently the largest percentage of carrion beetles are in places like exmoor and dartmoor where you do have dead animals that probably die in the middle of nowhere don't get picked up for a long time um yeah. so you know i find that that whole thing fascinating we've gone so far down down a route one way what happens if we go back a bit the other <laughs> no i think no i think that's that's a really uh, fascinating point and uh sort of coupled in with also that idea of people not liking to see it uh you know people like to have that distance from it as well so to suddenly have a load of animals in the field uh it'd be amazing to see the reaction i i, I feel like um isabella tree did mention it in her book saying that there was one aspect of the wilding they were they wanted to have was the animals dying in the natural causes of being left but they weren't allowed to but you know maybe there's a, a controlled controlled wilding which sounds like a, a oxymoron environment which can be set up in the uk to experiment with something like that because mm-hmm. yeah it would be amazing to see those results but i think i must close with my sort of closing questions uh that i normally like to ask I always find um learnings or come from sometimes uh hardship or wrongdoings and i just always i'd like to ask people who come on sort of what you've learned the hard way you know what have been some hard lessons which have turned out to be great in the journey that you've come on we start start with whoever's wants to go first for us the difficulty we have is we we don't own any land um and so we are always grazing for other people one of the things that we probably haven't got right over the years is getting a shared understanding with landowners of what we are trying to achieve, what we're trying to do, um, and how we would work together. You know, we've had landowners that will, you know, we've, we've left the grass grow long, and we've explained we're coming in to kind of graze it long grass. Um, they 
don't like the look of long grass and so have um, topped it within an inch of its life um, two weeks before we're supposed to come in with cattle, which obviously causes us a problem. So I guess that's probably the thing that we try and do or we need to do better um, is to make sure that both parties, us and the, the landowner, really understand what we want to do, why we want to do it, the benefits to them, um, and we kind of have a shared goal for that. Um, and that way we won't get caught out um, by the landowner suddenly mowing all the grass for us. Okay. And Claire? Um, I, I'm struggling with this one, to be honest, Harry. I think what I would say is the difficulties that are coming up against at the moment. <laughs> So if you actually say, for example, say you're a farmer, you've got a problem with worms and your cattle, so they're losing weight, they're not producing as much as they should be, they're not, they're, yeah, they're just not growing well, uh, you potentially even have some deaths in those animals, and you have a worming product that you can use that will get rid of all that for you, it'll go away, the problem will go away, so why wouldn't you use that? <laughs> and I think... The hard thing is the actual the really hard thing is trying to get people down that route of using fecal egg counts because there is risks always risks associated with not using these products in terms of animal health and welfare and your belt and braces approach is to use everything so when you're having those conversations with people and say well actually yeah your worm count has crept up a little bit but we're just going to hold off on the worm or we'll wait for another fecal egg count that is quite difficult for me as a vet yeah <laughs> Because the easy thing would be to say, go and get yourself a bottle and worm. So mm -hmm. yeah, so I think I think that in itself is quite difficult, and that's an ongoing thing, and that's me. But that's uh... yeah. <laughs> that's perfect, and, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, seeing your Nuffield at the end and, and watching this personal dilemma unfold within your <laughs> Nuffield. It's really excellent. But um, thank you both so much uh, for joining today. I have learnt a hell of a lot about dung beetles uh, and more. I've now know why paragliders go over arable fields that was completely new to me that was incredible <laughs> um it's a real nugget to share that i'm going to be telling all my friends pretending that i knew that but um thank you again for joining me uh, and if you'd like to learn more uh about what we've talked about today please find the links in the show notes uh join us again on the regen agri podcast next month in the meantime, you can subscribe, rate and review us on the Apple platform or find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at RegenAgri underscore CU and visit the website at RegenAgri.org for updates, case studies and access to the digital hub for free insights and advice. And our new catchphrase, spread the word, spread the dung. Um, thank you again, guys, uh, and see you next time. <laughs>